Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Did you know that you can participate in the show throughout the show by going to chat.asknoahshow.com or you can go to geeklab.ninja. All that will present the chat for you nice in your web browser. Now we use Element uh, and the Matrix, uh, which is a Matrix client, um, to, f- to facilitate the chat and it hosts our interactive Jitsi room where uh, a group of people are hanging out and we were just talking uh, before the show about Wi-Fi. So joining us on the show is, is the uh, Jitsi room. Hey guys, welcome. Hey, nice so, to uh, be on live. Yeah, so uh, let's uh, let's go back. So the, the the question, and I'll let you present it yourself, is basically you're looking to uh, upgrade your router. Yes, that's right. Okay, so we're looking at a couple of different options here. Uh, what I would suggest is 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 starting with with these three options. I would start with Microtech because it's an inexpensive option that will scale well. Um, I would also throw PFSense in there, and I would throw OpenSense in there. And the reason for that is PFSense, I think, has a much larger community backing than Microtech does. It also has a a wider range of deployments, whereas Microtech is primarily used inside of the WISP infrastructure and um, in a lot of of, uh, use case-specific things where they need some sort of custom device. Um, there, a lot of times you'll see that with Microtech. I've seen a lot of ISPs offering that. I've seen even some, uh, even some managed hosting companies that provide services uh, ship out a Microtech router, and so we've seen that. Uh, I think, though, that PFSense and, and OpenSense ha- have a wider community support, and so I would, I would definitely consider those three. Um, regardless of which router you go with, I am not a fan of uh, of sporks. I'm not a fan of of two devices that do one thing. If you have a fork and a spoon, then you have a, a not so good fork and a not so good spoon. Um, but you have them all in one. And I, I feel the same way when it comes to things like integrated routers. Most consumer grade routers and most consumer grade um, access points are really three devices in one. They are a router. They are also an access point, and they're also a switch. And so. When possible, anyway, I would always like to break those three devices up because it gives you a little bit more expandability. It also lets you make some more intentional decisions about the equipment and the layout. So where, where you're at is you're looking to add an access point somewhere in your house, a central point in your house, and you want that run to be back to the router. Is that an accurate summation of kind of where we were? Yeah, router to the access point from the access point to my bedroom wired. Okay, run that by so me. Just, so you want to run a wired yes. connection from the access point to your bedroom as well? Well, that, that's the existing wire. It goes through the attic. So I was just thinking I could uh, go up the attic and just cut it there, put the access point in the middle, and then continue on to the bedroom. Yes, that will work. Now, here's the downside to doing... Well, so let me 
explain why that will work. So with the access points that, that we I would recommend, which is a Unify UAPAC Pro, um, they have two network jacks on it. The first is the primary jack, which, as you would expect, you plug it into a PoE injector and then into a switch, and it provides power and network to the access point. The second jack is the secondary jack, and it is designed for the express purpose that you're speaking of, which is you have an access point at a place, but now you want to use that as a launch point to get another wired connection. That's precisely what the secondary jack is there for. The downside to doing that is that your all of the traffic in your bedroom is going to be limited to the throughput of the primary jack on the access point. That is to say, it's the, it's the culmination of all of your Wi-Fi traffic and the wired traffic in the bedroom, as opposed to if you had one run for an access point and a second run for a dedicated run in the bedroom. Um, so with that small caveat in mind, and unless you're doing some sort of data-intensive thing in your bedroom, I'm guessing a one-gig uplink port is more than enough to handle both Wi-Fi and wired. Um, there's no problem in doing that, and, and Unify certainly supports it. So my question, though, and the one that I is how to power so i basically that second port coming out of the out of the access point is powered it's uh, power over ethernet and i don't think it's af or at i think it's uh just you know dumb and so what i have now is a powered wire coming into my computer and i got to figure out how to I mean, I don't know if that's okay or not. Yeah, it is because here, and here's why. The, the way that PoE works is when a device wants PoE, it will, uh, it will essentially send a signal on two of the wires that, hey, send me PoE, and then the PoE injector will send the voltage down the wire. A properly configured network card or a properly manufactured network card, uh, it, it, you should not run into any issues plugging a non-PoE device into a PoE switch. I've only had one example of where that wasn't the case, and it's, it was with a, a cheap uh, wire testing unit off of Amazon. They don't tolerate PoE. If you plug them into something with PoE, they just blow and uh, and then you got to go replace them. Now they're only twenty dollars, and they're cheaper than the fluke. So we just are aware of that. Um, but that's the only time I've ever seen PoE cause a problem on a non-PoE device. That shouldn't be an issue for you. So I, going actually, into my computer, no problem with the uh, a hot wire. No, but here's the other thing to consider too, right? So the PoE wire is going to be from your router through the PoE injector up to your access point, the secondary jack on the access point that's going to run to your uh, computer, that's not going to be PoE because the, the PoE injector wouldn't have enough power, nor does nor is the access point designed to pass through PoE power. So the access point will suck the PoE power up. It will use it to power itself. That secondary jack is just going to be a dumb LAN jack. Got it. All right. Awesome. Well, it looks like I'm on the right track then. Thank you. Good deal. Yeah, don't uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me if you uh, if you run into any other problems. Again, 855-450-NOAA. That is the number to join us, 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our first email tonight comes in from Craig. Craig writes in and says, Hey, Noah, I've been listening to your podcast for a very long time here in South Africa, and I'm very grateful for all of your input. I love when a new episode of your show pops up in my podcast catcher. The ideological reasons for using Linux and open source software feel altogether healthier to me, although I don't know how to program anything but very simple code. I appreciate how open source allows how open source software allows peer-reviewed people who know what they're doing with code to look at it and review it. I thought I had some DuckDuckGo foo and that I would be able to find a simple answer to this question, but try as I might, I wasn't able to find a proper articles or how-to guys. I've been wondering how 
whether there is a way to set up a Linux server, perhaps with Ubuntu, Canonical and Ubuntu having an enormous South African connection, and then set up various GUI clients using something like a Raspberry Pi, a new Raspberry Pi 400 with an LCD display attached maybe? This would be for a small office, for people to have a simple, efficient server for people working, having a desktop experience using the Pi as a client to the server with VNC or similar remote desktop technology to allow the server to do the heavy lifting, editing documents, using LibreOffice, sending recycling email, perhaps occasionally doing some video editing or like CAD work. Are you aware of any projects like this or some resources that you could refer me to? Thank you for all that you do for the Linux community. Kind regards, Craig. So let's start with, uh, we'll go back in history uh, a little bit. There was a project a while back that uh, essentially offered a virtualization in a browser style virtualization. It was used to be called Altio and uh, played with that and used it heavily back in the day. Um, but so far as I know, there is no other project like that that is that is targeting that kind of, hey, grab any computer and grab your infrastructure and pull it in through a browser. The next best thing that we have are, as you mentioned, things like VNC or I would really look at something like X2Go. Um, there are really two, there are really three players in, in remote desktop, in the open source version of, of a remote desktop, uh, remote desktop infrastructure, I guess, VDI. They are VNC, which is very well understood, very well implemented, available just about on every distro, very simple to set up. The downsides are one, it isn't, it isn't, it doesn't perform quite as well as X2Go does or XRDP, which I'll get to in a second. The second problem with it is it's not encrypted by default. And so you really need to have some other infrastructure up around that, either a, a VPN to make at a minimum to make sure that you get into the network. But even even that, unless you really trust the corporate land and you trust all the users that are on the corporate land, it's VNC is not really the best choice if you have a way around it. Second thing you can do is XRDP and XRDP is an open source implementation of RDP and it works once it's set up, it works very, very well. And we've actually gotten to a point now where when we have uh, clients that need to access a Linux box, um, we'll typically set up uh, XRDP because they're able to access it from their Windows RDP client. And that's very beneficial, the cross platform parts of it. The other thing is RDP is a protocol. And the X and indeed the XRDP implementation of it is very, very, it performs very well and it's very responsive. And so most users feel like they're working at a desktop, which is kind of the experience that we want to deliver to them. Now, the best, in my opinion, is X2Go and X2Go functions because of the fact that your typical X environment has an X server and an X client. And so you can disconnect the X client from the X server. And instead of having them both on one machine, you can separate them. And so the client portion of the desktop rendering is happens on a separate machine, whereas the X server is still running on the host machine. So all of the applications and all of the things that you would want to access happen over X. X2Go uh, really takes X, X11 forwarding, which is how we used to hack that feature into remote desktop before, and it, and it, and it really formalizes it. And so you get a nice X2Go client that will run on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Um, you simply type in the IP address and it will connect over an SSH session. So it is secure, uh, and connect to a, a variety of different desktops and, uh, works very well. 
Now, Computer Kid in the chat mentions Spice, and Spice is if you already have a virtualized environment, which you may be thinking of, or which which sounds like you may be thinking of doing anyway. If you have a virtualized environment and you're using something like Libvirt, the other way that you can access that display system is something with like Spice. And so a typical uh, non-VDI implementation of that would be some, using something like Vert Manager to just get console access to the server uh, to make changes to it. But there's nothing stopping you from implementing that as a user way to access those machines. Now, the reason that we haven't done it at AltaSpeed is because there isn't a lot of wide support for Spice on a lot of different clients. So, for example, the Microsoft RDP client isn't going to support Spice, right? So you're going you're going to have to make some very specific uh, environment decisions. But if you're going to use something like a Raspberry Pi to access this virtual desktop infrastructure, you have a couple of options. One of the first things that you can do is you can use something like ThinLinks, which is a distro that you can install on the Raspberry Pi to make it a thin client. Now, ThinLinks is going to support XRDP. It is going to support VNC, it's going to support X. It's even going to support Spice. Now, Conan Kudo in the in the chat room uh, suggests that Cockpit supports Spice out of the box, which it does. But again, if you're using Cockpit, it's probably not an end user that's accessing this machine. That's more of an administrative thing. Your last option is a company called N Computing, and we have used these guys in uh, in production. Uh, a fair bit, actually. And they, if you want a boxed solution that you can just purchase and and set up, and computing is the way to go. Uh, they have a software stack that you'll install on your Ubuntu server, and then you simply purchase their thin clients. Um, they have a number of different ones you can choose from, including one that is based, in fact, off of the Raspberry Pi. Um, and so this is essentially, I believe they base it off the Raspberry Pi 3, um, but they call it the N-Computing NX, I believe. And it is a Raspberry Pi thin client that connects to their software. Now, the downside to N-Computing is that they do have proprietary software that you have to install on your computer, which is not ideal, obviously. The upside is that they they have a management console that takes care of everything for you. So you create your users and those users are automatically what you create the users on the host box, you install the software and then you provision these thin clients, point them towards the the server and they just start up and present the user with a very nice little login, uh, their own login. And it hands that off seamlessly in the background to the Ubuntu computer to get authenticated. And then it presents the user their desktop. So as far as they're concerned, they sit down at these little end computing things and they have an Ubuntu desktop wherever they go. The other thing that we have used with limited success is there is a browser plugin actually for Chrome, the end computing browser plugin. And this will allow you to connect, at least in theory, to a end computing server. Now, again, we've used it with limited success, but if you, again, if you're looking for a boxed solution, that's a great way to go. So uh, X2Go is where I would probably start. It's It'll take you five, 10 minutes to get that set up and playing with it. It will certainly work on a Raspberry Pi as it would on any other Linux desktop, as it would on any other operating system. And uh, And if you need, if you run out of options, then I would take a look at end computing. Our second email comes in from Zach. Zach writes in and says, hey, Noah, great show. Keep up the great work. I have a PFSense running at home and it works fine. I would like to add IPS and IDS, but I'm overwhelmed when it comes to Snort, Suricata, PF, Blocker, NG, and associated configuration pages. Can you recommend a good configuration guide for a reasonable home and home office setup? So to a certain degree, Zach, what I would tell you is I'd need to know a little bit more about where you have left off. How long have you been using PSNs? 
Um, if you've been using PFSense for any less than, I'd say, one to three months, somewhere in there, I would probably hold off on getting IDS uh, and IPS uh, enabled. We went to set up a client and uh, kind of did the same thing. We, we started out and, and rolled PFSense to all three of their sites and, and rolled out Siracata in the whole nine yards. Ran into a number of different little issues, all of which um, were well understood once we actually dug into it. But we created a lot of unnecessary headaches to ourselves because we tried to apply too much complication too fast. Um, and so what I, was, what I would suggest to you is first get your network working the way that you want it to work and then go back and add Sericata. Now, there's going to be some people out there that go, well, you can, IDS and IPS only works if you start from the beginning. Okay, fine. Set up your network. Learn how you want everything set up in PFSense, then blow it away and set it back up with Sericata. But my point is, hold off on setting up additional security protocols until you have your head wrapped around how you want how you want your device to work and make sure it's working for you. Again, you can join us uh, live by going to eight or by calling eight fifty five four fifty no. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at ask Noah show. Dot com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Our third email comes in from Charlie Brown AU, and he says, Good day, Noah and the Ask Noah community. One of your shows you mentioned looking for alternatives to Reddit. I wanted to suggest Ruckus as a Reddit alternative, and he links to Ruckus, R-U-Q-Q-U-S dot com. And so I've had a chance to take a look at this. It looks like it's, uh, it, it's, it is, it looks exactly like Reddit. It really does. Um, more really what that software pick was about and really what excites me about it is the fact that it's no longer the status quo that just because there is a site out there and that's where some people are uh, that everybody is going to join there and have those discussions. It turns out there's a lot of ways to have that kind of same uh, interaction. And so Ruckus looks very cool. I, I can't I couldn't tell by looking at Ruckus. It looks like it is just a. Uh, a service, a site. It doesn't look like it was self-hosted, um, which was kind of one of the appeals of, of that software pick. But I like all the alternatives to Reddit as um, you can't have too much competition in the market. Our last email comes in, or excuse me, second last email comes in from Christopher. Christopher writes in and says, caught your section last week on Ask Noah regarding Akihabara in Tokyo. I lived in Japan for three years. Returning to the U.S. earlier this year, I had the opportunity to visit the Akihabara and all of the shops around Electric Street. It's an awesome place and definitely recommend anything visiting Japan. Christopher, I, I agree. That's kind of what I was saying last episode is if you have the opportunity, the culture in Japan is just very different from the culture in the United States. And it does a person well to understand how other people in the world live. And I remember seeing, there aren't a lot of homeless people in Japan, but I remember seeing a homeless guy outside of a bridge. And it, what caught me off guard was here in the U S people, there's trash and all sorts of stuff all over the place where, where, where people that are, are less fortunate are hanging out. Um, in this particular case though, this guy had his little under the bridge thing, very well kept. His shoes were nicely arranged. Like he just took a lot of pride uh, in his area and, and where he was living. And it, and it just, it struck me as a very big cultural difference to the way we do things here in the United States. So if you ever have an opportunity, that said, if you ever have an opportunity to visit Japan, make sure to check out Akihabara and make sure to, uh, to, to engage in that because it's just, it's a fun place to visit. Our last email comes in from Ronald. Ronald says, Hey, I just got myself an account set up on Element.io. What are my next steps to getting patched into this new communication medium? Linux desktop, Kubuntu, need a matrix client, Element client. What's good, Ronald? Okay, so let's start here. 
Matrix is really for early adopters. It's just, I would put it today, right around the same, uh, right around the same tolerance as I have for Slack. Uh, it Element is a Chromium-based, um, you know, Electron app. And I've said numerous times that I believe we need to embrace Electron uh, on the Linux desktop if we want to have uh, continual progress. But that said, it just doesn't feel like a native app because it's not one. The good thing about Matrix is, even though it's really in its infancy or, and it's, it's just starting to, to take off, there are a lot of, there's a lot of development around. And so you have a, a, a wide range of choice on clients. I continue to look for the easiest way to get somebody on board. And I want a Telegram version of, uh, of Matrix that I can just send somebody to the play store or the iOS uh, app store and have them download an app and then instantly be able to send a message to another person. And right now, uh, element would tell you that, that they, that's what they are aiming for, uh, with matrix.org and element. But the truth is, uh, it has confused almost everybody I've ever sent there. And so I don't know that, uh, that, that element and matrix.org is going to be, uh, is going to be that on-ramp, that easy on-ramp. I see Element as the full Monty. I see Element as a Slack or Teams replacement, which is a totally different animal, has totally different goals, a totally different feature set than something like Telegram. It's more complicated. Uh, it has more granular controls because the kind of people that are using it for a communications platform on a day-to-day -day basis, I exist in hundreds of rooms. And so I have to be able to control those things. Um, and that's not really what you want for a day-to-day -day messenger going back and forth. Now, I use it that way, and a lot of other people do, and if you can tolerate it, that's great, but there, you have other options. Uh, and so, first of all, if there's anybody out there that has experience developing mobile apps, I want to hear from you. Send me an email at live at asknoahshow.com because I, I would like to see if there's anything that we can do to fix this. But right now, Element is the most feature-complete matrix client out there. No doubts about it. If you go to element.io and you sign up for an account, then you've created an account on the matrix.org server and any element client will by default try to log into the matrix.org server. So you just type in your username and password and away you go. Now, once you're signed in, uh, you, because matrix.org is a federated server, you can join other federated servers. So for one of the federated servers, obviously, that we would prefer you be on is Linux Delta. And so you can do that by just clicking on the Explore Rooms button next to the search and on the left-hand side of the element client, click Add a New Server, and you'll type in linuxdelta.com. Now, a lot of people have gotten confused on how server names work in Matrix. The actual host name of the machine that runs linuxdelta.com is matrix.linuxdelta.com. That is the A record that is assigned to the IP address that hosts our matrix instance. But very much like an organization does email, we drop the host name in the servers and the name of the matrix server is just linuxdelta.com. And the reason I point that out is because usernames are going to be username colon linuxdelta.com, but the server that you have to point your client to is matrix.linuxdelta.com. Now, we have a write-up on Linux Delta that will walk you through exactly how to do that. I'll link to that in the show notes. But if you're exploring other servers... Um, that's how you can get connected to the Geek Lab, for example. That's how you can get connected to Noah's Booth. We have the refuge for people that are just looking, uh, that, that just need, that just need emotional support, that want friends to hang out. Nothing tech related per se. Um, all of these rooms are available because they're all federated. Um, and you can join them even if you have an account at matrix.org. Again, just by clicking on that explore 
button adding the Linux Delta server. You could add Jupyter Broadcasting. Uh, com, and you can explore their rooms. And so there's an audio file room in there that we discuss uh, audio stuff. And uh, the Linux uh, destination Linux guys are they're over on on matrix.org. And so you would have to you there's no easy way to find that. You'll have to type it in destination Linux because obviously if you explore the matrix.org server, you're going to see every room on matrix.org. Whereas on Linux Delta, we just have the rooms that are related to uh, shows and tech and 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 so on and so forth. Um, but to me. Matrix is like a passport and you have the ability to get on to the Matrix um, Federation and speak to anybody on that Federation. And what's been particularly exciting, uh, I guess, for us is we've had some clients that either they work in the medical industry or they work in the law industry. And so encryption is a is a foregone conclusion for them. And Slack does not offer end to end encryption. Teams does not offer end encryption. Uh, Discord does not offer end-to-end encryption. And so Element becomes an obvious choice. And it becomes an obvious choice partly because of EMS. You can get a hosted instance, your own hosted instance from Element. They will host it for you. They will run it for you. They will manage it for you. And they only charge you two bucks per month per user. And let me tell you, the onboarding process is the slickest you've ever seen. You go to their website. You type in the name of the, the, the name that you want your server to be, even if you want to use your own DNS, they'll host the well-known files for you. If you don't understand how to set up Nginx and do the proxying and all of that, uh, they'll take care of all that for you. They have uh, a support team that will help you migrate your instance from their hosted instance to your on-prem instance. If you ever want to do that, I, I just doesn't get any better. And it's a third of the price of what a Slack uh, cost is. So save money, more features, better experience, no real reason not to do that. Now, when you get to clients, I said you have a couple of options with clients, and you really do. Uh, the Probably one of my favorite clients out there is Nico, or the newest one is Nico Reborn. And Nico is a native QT client, and that's why I prefer it, because I'm on KDE and it just it matches all my themes. Everything looks really nice, but it also works the best out of all of the third-party non-element clients out there. Now, Again, most of these projects, in fact, most of the things surrounding Matrix other than Synapse and Element are really alpha or beta projects. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, a, a polish on a lot of these. Um, so Nico works for sending and receiving messages, but it doesn't do anything in the way of backing up encryption keys, which Element takes care of for you. Um, and so you're going to lose access to all of your encrypted conversations or lose access to those messages if you reinstall Nico without first exporting your keys and re-importing them. Um, Fractal is a GTK GNOME client, which we're going to talk about later in the episode, it actually comes pre-installed on a lot of the PinePhone operating systems. But I've had, I've had a, a recurring problem with Fractal that I can't seem to solve, and it is that every time I sign into Fractal, it works just fine, but as soon as I close the application and open it back up, it makes me re-sign in, which, of course, is frustrating. I think Fractal is, outside of that one flaw, a little bit more polished than Nico. On the mobile side, and I think Fluffy Chat exists for Linux as well, but on the mobile side, you have Fluffy Chat and Ditto Chat, and these are really your... Telegram-like alternatives. Uh, if you if you are used to using Telegram or Signal or iMessage, uh, Fluffy Chat or Ditto Chat is going to mimic that experience almost one to one. It's going to look very similar to that. The only difference is in Matrix, everything is a chat, and so because of that, you have chats with just one on one, and you have group chats, and so they split those up into two categories. Um, both of them are very good applications. The only issue, again. The issue is uh, is stability and the issue is consistency. I've 
recommended Fluffy Chat to a few people. Some people have no problems with it at all. My sister downloaded it on her phone. She typically has a a, a, a first-class Android phone, whatever the nicest thing that they have at the store. That's typically what she buys. Fluffy Chat wasn't working for him. No idea why. Um, Ditto Chat is made by a, a woman named Annie Eloquent, I think is her name, and she's done a fantastic job really making a a first-class matrix client that is built for what people would expect from a messaging platform. She put it together for her family and friends. Um, but again, there's with all of these projects, there's a couple little shortcomings. I downloaded Ditto Chat. I couldn't get, I couldn't find a way to create an account on her server. And so you have to change the server to one that you already have an account. And again, of course, if that's the case, now we're back to most normal users aren't going to know how to do that. So I, I remain hopeful that someday there will be a more easy way to just onboard people where they can just download an app, open the app and start sending messages to one person or another. That would be really fantastic. Indeed, that actually is the promise of Dendrite, which is the second generation matrix server. So the idea is going to be that they're going to roll the server and the client all into one and it'll all be able to run right on your phone. Um, so that will change things massively. The landscape will shift massively when that happens. But of course, that's not going to be for a while. Um, anyway, all of that to say, if you're just getting started with Matrix or you're just learning about it, it is an exceptionally exciting, promising platform. I I rarely come across projects that are this well-managed that have this much support behind them because I'm telling you, if you knew nothing about Matrix and all you wanted to do was get a secure encrypted communication platform up from your business and you went to element.io, clicked on plan, signed up for the nickel plan, you would be just as, you'd be more happy than you are with Slack because it's a better product than Slack, hands down, unequivocally, my bias removed. Um, but if you want to dig in further than that and you want to start playing with these other things, the great thing about about Matrix is that there are a number of clients, and we're going to see why that is so relevant and so important coming up later in the episode. Our sixth email comes in from Jonathan. Jonathan writes in and says, my DuckDuckGo in Google Foo is not at the level I thought. I'm getting no space left on device. And so I checked with DF, inodes, and disk space, and then I tried uh, DU, and I'm getting different results. DU, I'm getting 3.9 terabytes used, and DF, I'm getting 6.4 terabytes used. Can you help me point in the direction to where I can look? Also, tell me why DU and DF are reporting two very different numbers. I assume that the difference between DU and DF is part of my problem, but I do not know. Um, and he includes a, a, a paste bin with some more details, and so I, I appreciate that. As far as the differences, well, let's let me back up. Let me say this. The proper way to look at how much space you have in an LVM is PV display. And if you use that, you can use a, an LVM utility to see what your, what your disk is actually laid out. Now, as to why DU and DF are showing different things, I, when I first read your email, I didn't know. And I, I talked to a couple of people on my team and said, you know, does anybody else, has anybody seen this before? And, and um, Steve actually in the community said, yeah, I, I've seen that. Um, I wonder if it's double mounted. And so you might want to check to see if you have a duplicate mount. Duplicate mount would work something like this. Let's say you have your downloads folder inside of your home directory and you've downloaded, uh, let's say, four different copies of, uh, of, of Linux distros. You've downloaded Fedora and Ubuntu and Arch and uh, SUSE. And you have all of those sitting, and so now you've in each one of those ISOs, you know, maybe two, three gigs, and so you have six or eight gigs, something like that, sitting on your disk. Now you say to yourself, self, you know what I should do? I really should map my downloads folder to my NAS so that every time I download something, it's on the NAS and it's shared with all the other computers in the house. And so you go and create a, a, a map uh, or a mount point to your downloads folder and map it to an NFS share. 
Well, if you think about what's happening under the hood, you've not increased your available disk size, but now that mount point is going to sh is going to be reflective of the free space on the server. It's not going to show the files that are quote unquote hidden underneath because they still exist on that folder. It's just an amount point underneath. So that would be the first thing I would suggest you check. Um, but yeah, going forward, when you want to, when you want to check out your, um, when you want to work with LVM, I would suggest using tools built for LVM. Our pick of the week this week is Jump Drive. Uh, you can learn more at github.com slash dreamers dash embedded slash jump drive. I will uh, have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. This piece of software literally changed the way that I was able to play with a Pine OS, or uh, excuse me, a Pine phone. If you want to get started with a Pine phone, you have to have Jump Drive. You just do. Uh, Pine devices are fantastic, and they're easy enough to boot. They will always prefer to boot off of the... SD card, and that's true from both the laptop as well as the Pine phone. Now, the problem comes in when you want to write to the eMMC controller. I don't want to run my operating system off of an SD card. It's slow, and frankly, that's not really why I bought a phone. I, I, I want to run it off of the built-in controller. It's much faster, and then you don't have to have that SD card. Plus, I can use it for expandable space. It's difficult to write to the controller. Now, on the Pine book, because it's an actual computer, what we've done is you can boot off of the SD card, then you can simply just DD, download the image that you want to write to the eMMC control, and then DD it over to the, uh, to the eMMC uh, storage device. That obviously is very time-consuming, and it's not a lot of fun, and it makes it difficult to jump from one operating system to the other. Jump Drive fixes all of that. Essentially, what you do is you download Jump Drive, and you write it with DD or whatever image writing utility you want to use onto a SD card. You then place the SD card into the Pine phone and you turn the Pine phone on. What this does when the Pine phone boots up, of course, it's going to boot off of the SD card first and it's going to boot into the operating system jump drive. Jump drive essentially is a piece of software that presents the Pine phone when booted as a removable storage device to your laptop. And so you put the SD card in, you turn the phone on, jump drive shows up on the, on, on the uh, display of the phone, you plug a USB cable into your laptop, and now, you can, now that eMMC controller shows up as a drive on your laptop, and you can just either DD an image right to the Pine phone, or I installed GNOME Disks, and, and this way I can just double-click on the Pine phone image, and it pops up with a little GNOME dialog that says, what device would you want to write to? Choose the eMMC. Click start. I get a progress bar. When the progress bar is finished, I restart the. I take the battery out, pull the SD card out, restart the phone. Now it boots off of the eMMC controller with my new operating system, and I can play with it. And this, I, not only was it easier for me because I can jump from one operating system to the other, and I can really get a good comparison between the difference between something like Postmarket OS and UbiPorts and Sailfish OS, and I can bounce between them. Not only does that work, it also opened up the ability for my kids and my wife to start playing with this. And so uh, Jump Drive, you can learn more. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Absolutely a must if you're going to be playing with the Pine Phone. Our gadget of the week this week is the Keystone Type-C pass-through panel. Now, basically what this is, if you work in IT or if you've ever been in an office environment, you've probably seen this. The little wall plates that go, uh, that contain the RJ45 connector, or excuse me, the... Um, female version of RJ45 name slips my uh, 
can't think of it off the top of my head. But the uh, the little jack that goes into the wall, and these are pro- these are based off of a universal mounting system called Keystone. And so you can buy Keystone plates, which have either one, two, four, six little square holes in them, and then you can buy Keystone modules that plug in. And so a typical uh, a typical module would be the uh the little rj45 type connectors um you can also use a you can also buy ones that have rca connectors for doing home theater you can buy coax ones for doing tv you can buy hdmi if you need to connect to a projector and so it's a very versatile way to install uh, jacks inside of either your house or your office environment they now have keystone type c jacks and so as you might expect it has a type c jack on the front type c jack on the bottom and the idea here was i paired this with the uh, Type C charger that we mentioned a, f- a, f- a few weeks ago, the small little, uh, the small little uh, sixty watt charger from a company by the name of Rav Power, um, I paired it with that, and then an anchor cable. And essentially, what I was able to do was place little Type C charging uh, jacks all over my house. Uh, and in my kitchen, I was able to put six of them. And so I have a little six way power adapter underneath my kitchen cabinet, and I have six of these uh, Rav Power. Uh, 65 watt chargers. Then those all have uh, anchor three foot cables that run up to the back of these this keystone plate that has six little keystone type C jacks. The end result is from when you walk into my house, when you walk into the kitchen, you look up on the counter over by where the island is and you just see six little type C jacks, all of which are capable of charging six computers simultaneously. There is no way that you're ever going to safely be able to build something like that into a wall. I've seen Leviton has, and we talked about him on the show, has little Type-C power outlets. But you're never going to be able to get that much power into a small space. And so the only way you're going to be able to do that is to break out each one of these 65-watt separate uh, wall warts and have those in a separate space and where it's ventilated and aired out and separated and of course uh, calculated for the right amount of wattage and stuff like that. And once you've done that, then you can run all of the connectors back up into that keystone plate, but the end user, read your family, will only see uh, the, a little Type-C jack. The only downside, and it is a big downside, the only downside to these little jacks, and I'm hoping they fix them over time, for some stupid reason, they're directional. If you plug in a cable, it ha- the, uh, Type-C obviously fits in either direction, which is the whole idea behind having a, a universal connector. For some stupid reason, those keystone jacks require you to plug the cable in a certain way. Um, I've so far begrudgingly accepted it because it's still better than having to drag wall warts all over the place, but it is frustrating that you have to plug the cable in a certain way to the wall. The Obviously, the adapter doesn't do that. The cable doesn't do that. It's it's a problem with the keystone jack, so hopefully that will be resolved over time. But I'll have a link to all three of those devices, the RAV Power, the Anchor Cable, and the keystone jack in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, OpenZFS, this Monday, ZFS on Linux lead developer Brian Belderoff published OpenZFS 2.0, the release to GitHub, along with quite a lot of new features and and announcements that brings the former distinction between ZFS on Linux and ZFS elsewhere, for example, on FreeBSD. This move has been a long time coming, but with this release, it's official. So we we now have one code base for ZFS, OpenZFS, and it's going to be that same code base that that supports both Linux and BSD. And so we have one roadmap, one code base. This is really exciting. Users of Linux distributions that use the DKMS-built OpenZFS kernel modules will tend to get their 
new release rather quickly, but users of the better supported but slower moving Ubuntu probably won't see OpenZFS 2.0 until Ubuntu 21.10 nearly a year from now. However, if you want to play with it, you might have the opportunity to do so as they do have a PPA available, and so you can add that and uh, and give it a shot. There are three big features that are that uh, that have arrived with OpenCFS 2.0. The first is sequential resilvering. Rebuilding degraded arrays in ZFS has historically been very different from conventional RAID on nearly empty arrays. On nearly empty arrays, the ZFS rebuild known as resilvering, which was much faster because ZFS only needed to touch a used portion of the disk rather than cloning the entire section across entire drives. But this process involved an, abund- an abundance of random I.O. and nearly full arrays, conventional RAIDs with more pedestrian block-by-block whole disk rebuild went much faster. With sequential resilvering, ZFS gets the best at both worlds, large sequential access while still skipping unused portions of the disk involved. The second big feature is persistent L2 arc, and uh, this is essentially a, a very advanced read cache. And the third uh, big feature that is coming is a new compression algorithm called ZSTD. And uh, this offers a more transparent inline compression controllable at a per data set granularity. Traditionally, the algorithm most commonly used has been LZ4, a streaming algorithm offering a relatively four comp- uh, poor compress ratio compared to the light CPU load. OpenZFS 2.0 brings support for ZStand as an algorithm designed by Jan Collett, the author of LZ4, which aims to provide compression similar to GZIP with a CPO similar to LZ4. If you've listened to this program for any amount of time, I don't have to tell you how excited I am about OpenZFS. I don't have to tell you how many times ZFS has saved my took is both in production and, because, frankly, because I'm lazy, and it just works. Um, so it's really, really exciting to see this stuff coming to Linux because up until now, we have placed all of our storage needs on FreeNAS primarily because of ZFS. And I think as OpenZFS makes its way into the Linux environment, I think what you're going to find is that a lot of people uh, and a lot of other options like Open Media Vault are going to become very competitive and very appealing because they're going to be running on Linux and you're going to have a lot of access to um, to new features while at the same time having all of the stability of and protection of your data on ZFS. WireGuard 0.3.1 has been released for Windows. Now, primar- more ordinarily, I wouldn't jump all over a, a release even if it is an open source release for Windows. However, this is pretty cool because it, it fixes a lot of problems for Windows users and gets them on board uh, with WireGuard. One of the limitations that's finally been removed is underprivileged users may be added to the Windows built-in group network configuration operators. And once they're members of that group, um, their registry key is added and they are able to access their own tunnel into the corporate LAN. Previously, they had to be a a privileged user to do that. Multiple tunnels can simultaneously be activated from the GUI. And this feature, also called registry-gated, uh, for now, to use it, you'll need to create a, uh, a custom registry entry, and we'll have the link for you from ARS Technica. Uh, Jim Salter has a great write-up on it. Uh, we'll have that link for you in podcast.asknoahshow.com. But without creating that, uh, you won't when when a when a tunnel comes up, the old tunnel is automatically deactivated, 
And so this has the ability to have multiple tunnels up, which in our case would be extraordinarily helpful because oftentimes we have a tunnel back to the office and then we have a tunnel to whatever client we're working on. Uh, Windows app instances being fed with tunnels to import rather than simply finding them in a directory like OpenVPN does. And so beginning with version 3.1, those who don't want to get all of the, don't want to have to go through and import all of those by hand, you can simply dump them into C program files, WireGuard data configurations, and it will automatically scan that folder for new .conf files. When it, when it finds those .conf files, it does something very interesting. It will import it, then it will save it back out as a .dpapi file, and so it encrypts it so that it would not be useful to an attacker should they find that file. Anyway, lots of very exciting things happening in WireGuard. Uh, I would invite you to go back out and check our interview with Jason Donafield talking about uh, what WireGuard is and why it is the future of VPN, or at least I think so. More information can be found at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Slack is being acquired by Salesforce. Slack, Slack Technologies and Salesforce have entered into a definitive agreement under which Salesforce will acquire Slack. Together, Salesforce and Slack will give companies a single source of truth for their business and a unified platform connecting employees, customers, partners, all with the apps that they use every day, all within their existing workflows for the low, low price of $27.7 billion. Eight months, as early as eight months ago, I was saying that Teams was just, I didn't understand why Microsoft was getting into the game. It seemed like they were late. Slack had become the de facto uh, messaging platform for businesses. Um, And if you were going with something else, you were probably rolling your own custom solution or you were using something that wasn't really designed for, for businesses. I also didn't like the fact that Teams, to this day, as far as I know, you still can't talk with other teams in a different instance. You can only work inside of your organization, which seems like a huge shortcoming. But businesses basically have gotten to a point where they're making one of two choices. They're either going with Office 365 or they're going with G Suite. And when they're going with Office 365, Teams is unbelievably obnoxious trying to get you to use it. And they're making progress. The fact that they've been able to tie phones and SIP extensions into Teams got them a good long way. The fact that it just rolls out as pop part of Office 365 gets them a good long way. And the fact that most of business America was already running on Microsoft products gets them a good long way. And so this $27.7 billion purchase of Slack, it puts Slack in a different category and really positions them, I think, to compete with teams. Now, on the open source side, we don't have a lot of choices, right? Probably the closest open source Office suite that you can get as 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 a service would be something like the Proton Suite. And indeed, just earlier this month on the 16th, they did launch early access to Proton Drive. So if you have a visionary account, you have a lifetime account, you have an account with Proton Mail Plus, Proton VPN Plus, or if you have an account with Proton Mail Professional, um, all of those will get you access to the beta on Proton Drive. They have a beta for calendar, and obviously their mail is well-established and, and well-works. So we're making some progress, but really the only actual alternative that I'm aware of that, uh, that, has, that has the ability to just sign up for a service is actually Matrix or Element, uh, Element EMS. There is Rocket Chat, there is Mattermost, but all of those you're, you have to self host you don't have a you don't have a choice now conan kudo asks an interesting question he says the proton suite open source i actually don't think it is now that i think now that you say that you're right it's it's an encrypted suite um 
but it's all about data privacy and you're paying Proton. You, the, the agreement is well understood. They're going to write the code and they're going to provide the software and they're going to provide the service and you pay them a, a flat fee, but you retain the rights to your data. So we'll call it, um, we'll call it a, a plus solution from Office 365 or, or G Suite. But you're right, it's not fully open source. And if it were, people would be able to self-host it. In any event, um, where the, the, this, this purchase of Slack is interesting to me, primarily because I was one of the people that got after them um, that you couldn't mute individual users. And my response, which I went and found on Twitter today, just kind of looking back, um, they said, yeah, we're not going to do that. It's not on our roadmap and we don't care. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, well, that really puts my business in a bind if I need a feature or want to change something and you're not willing to accommodate me. Obviously, that's not the case with Element because you can just join the chat room and make a suggestion and the devs are more than happy to have that conversation with you. Again, one 855 no, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Pine64, we are pleased to announce the KDE Community Edition of the PinePhone is now available for pre-order. This edition of the PinePhone ships with a tailor-built version of Plasma Mobile built on Manjaro Linux, and it is the culmination of ongoing efforts to bring the popular Plasma environment to mobile. This Community Edition... We'll skip the custom present. We'll ship in a custom presentation box designed by the Plasma Mobile team, and the PinePhone itself will feature a KDE logo on the back cover. See renders for reference. The PinePhone CE will be available in two hardware configurations. One hundred forty nine dollars gets you two gig, uh, two gigs of RAM, a sixteen gigabyte eMMC module. For one hundred ninety nine dollars, you get the three gigabyte version, a thirty two gig eMMC module, plus you get a Type C dock. Now, I use that. It's exciting. First of all, that. They are shipping a KDE Community Edition, but I use that as a setup to talk about getting started with your PinePhone. Now, we've talked a little bit about Jump Drive, and that's certainly one of the first things that you're going to want to get. Before you order a PinePhone for either $150 or $200, I want you to understand what you're purchasing. You're not purchasing a replacement for your Android phone. You're not going to compete with the iPhone 12. It's not even going to be close, right? This is a toy. It's something to tinker with. It's something to understand what the future of technology might be. And if that sounds like that's for you, then you should go purchase one. By the way, you should purchase the $199 one, not because of the Type-C dock, but because of the extra RAM. You can purchase the Type-C dock later if you needed it, but you can't upgrade the RAM later. Well, maybe you can if you took it apart far enough. But the... The device in general is a little laggy. It's a little buggy because the software is very early days. The device itself is very early days. However, all of the radios work and they publish on their site which carriers are going to work. And so you're not purchasing a, a, a beta device. It is a fully functional device. But you're going to run into certain issues. And I ran into certain issues primarily because there was no SIM card. And I fixed that by putting an empty, unactivated SIM card in. But it's little things like that, little paper cuts that you better be prepared um, to deal with. It's, it feels like alpha software. It feels like tinkering. But I'm learning, and that's fun. Additionally, it's been a great opportunity for my kids and my wife to be able to play with a phone without breaking it. My son asked me months ago, he said, I want to flash an operating system to my phone. And I said, well, that's a dangerous thing to do because if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't go well, you're going to end up breaking your phone. And he didn't understand why that was. Why would a manufacturer, why would Samsung, why would LG, why would Google make their phone so that you can't put something else on it? Why would they do that? Well, the, the Pine phone is specifically designed for this. And again, Flash, or excuse me, Jump Drive makes it super easy because you simply boot that SD card and then you can flash whatever you want. So I started with UbiPorts um, because it's probably the 
most well-supported distro out there uh, for mobile in general. It doesn't support encryption out of the box, but it has a very large app environment and obviously great community support. Uh, after that, I gave uh, Sailfish OS a spin on it. Um, does not run anywhere near as well on the Pine phone as it ran on, on the Sony Xperia. Um, but it is undoubtedly the most complete Linux-based mobile operating system. It's the closest thing that I've seen to being a replacement for a regular Android or iOS device. But the browser sucks. They don't officially support running it in the U.S. Um, and it, 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 the the... The community support is fantastic, um, but there's no Matrix client that works. There's no Telegram client that works. There's no Signal client that works. Uh, most of the projects have been either abandoned or they haven't been frequently updated. The App Store does have a surprising amount of really good apps. In fact, some of them I actually like even better than Android. But And the UI is undoubtedly one of the best UIs for a mobile device I've ever seen. I then tried uh, WebOS, which there is a, a, a fork of it called Luna, Luna OS for PinePhone. Um, couldn't get it to install, couldn't get it to boot, but it, it's exciting to me because it's a fork of the original WebOS, which is an evolution of Palm OS. It was bought out by HP, released as FOSS later, and it's probably, again, one of the best mobile UIs ever. Then we get to some of the operating systems that work really well on the PinePhone. So the first one I tried uh, that, were, that I was really happy with was Manjaro Arm. First things first, right out of the gate, the pin, if you do this, is 123456. It's hard-coded in there, and I couldn't find a way to change it. It uses the GTK frameworks, and one of the first things I noticed was when I fired up Firefox, you get the desktop version of Firefox, and that's really cool because it means that we can add all of my browser extensions in there, and indeed, today, we get a good long way because many workflows are based off of working in the browser and off of browser extensions, and I got that right on my Pine phone. And so, no, there was no native Bitwarden app, but I had Bitwarden on my Pine phone because of the extension. So that was pretty cool. Additionally, I love the fact that anything that's in the AOR, you can install it. Now, many of the programs that I tried to install said they failed, but they still worked. And so I installed Kate, it said it failed, but it still opened. I installed VLC, it said it failed, but I still opened. And then I was able to uh, use the file manager to browse to my network share and watch a movie. That's the kind of stuff that I think is really cool that you just can't do with the device that you buy off of the cell phone store. Keyboard and mouse work great out of the box with the included uh, Type-C dock. Display does not. Um, you can encrypt it, but it requires jumping through a lot of hoops. Uh, you got to do it by hand. There's no, um, there's no user way built in to do it. Uh, the second thing I tried, or the, the, excuse me, fourth thing I tried was Plasma Mobile. And this is the, was by far the least usable out of all of the operating systems I tried, but it was also the most familiar. Uh, it crashed the first time I booted. The pin for the Plasma Mobile is 1234. Uh, it ran slow, and it was unresponsive even after the first time where it crashed, but it was one of the most familiar uh, feeling environments. I had Dolphin, I had the Breeze theme. It, it was, looks really cool. So I'm excited that they made the announcement that they're going to shift this because I imagine that development is going to pick up and we're going to make some, some progress pretty quick. Um, 2Bit in the chat room says that the issue with the desktop version of the application says they don't work well with the screen, which I entirely believe because there were certain UI elements that were missing. But the thing was that was so exciting to me and the reason that I am just over the moon about Pine in general was the fact that I can even install Kate and I can run it on my phone. Like, that's not even an option most of the time, and it is now. By far the best operating system out there that I tried this week was Postmarket OS. Uh, the, first of all, they support encryption out of the box. Second of all, you can set the PIN, because there is a user setup, which is kind of nice. Um, 
It comes with G-Edit and, and a basic set of apps, but I couldn't figure out how to get anything else installed. Um, the documentation says to use APKeyAdd, uh, but neither that nor the software center resulted in me actually being able to load software onto Postmarket OS, as opposed to uh, Manjaro Arm, which not only let me load the software on to the phone, but it let me load a bunch of stuff that was just from the AOR. So uh, if you're looking to get started with a Pine phone, my suggestion is purchase the one uh, with the extra RAM. The first thing you do is get Jump Drive, load that onto an SD card, and then uh, plug that into a Linux laptop and go from there. A couple of announcements. Uh, RHEL 6, we are reaching the end of maintenance. Red Hat recommends that their customers run software that's actively maintained. And so if you're still running an environment with RHEL 6, you basically have two choices. You can purchase extended life cycle, which is very expensive, or you can upgrade to 7 or 8. Um, there is a The EFF is hosting a fireside chat about Section 230 encryption. The discussion kicks off Thursday, December 10th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Thanks for joining us.